0: Welcome to The Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast is on the Man of God Network, and The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. And uh, what what are, what better way for us to do that than to talk with gifted men uh, that have given much study to the Second London Confession of Faith? And one of those such men are Dr. James Renahan. We've had Dr. Renahan on the podcast multiple times, but uh, welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Renahan. Well, thanks. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to be with you again. Yeah, we're always grateful to uh, talk with you. Hope you're doing well. I, I think that you've had some recent travels. Perhaps you can talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but for our listeners that don't know you, we've previously had you on around a year ago to talk about a book that released, uh, which was your exposition, on the first London Confession of Faith uh, for the Vindication of the Truth, and uh, we've had you on in the past to talk about associationalism and uh, other topics, so we're really grateful that you continue to uh, give your time to talk about many of these important subjects. But uh, for our audience that doesn't know you, can you reintroduce yourself and perhaps tell our audience how you're doing? Sure. I
1: am president of International Reformed Baptist Seminary, located in Mansfield, Texas. Um, I've been in the gospel ministry for about, uh, well, since 1984 is when I was ordained. Um, I have been married almost 45 years. We have five children. Two of them are pastors in Reformed Baptist churches. In fact, I think you've had Sam on the Covenant podcast at times in the past, uh, my youngest son youngest of the three Um, just returned from uh, two weeks in England. Uh, We have uh, several uh, agreements with international entities. And I was teaching at IRBS UK. uh, And that was great. I really enjoyed being there. Some great friends over there. Uh, We've got a busy couple of weeks coming up now with we leave uh, two days from now for another trip. And then next week, the end of next week uh, for a week in Mexico. So life is busy, but I'm thankful to God. And, um, well, ready to talk to you guys.
0: And what course were you teaching over there? And
1: yeah, I was teaching the second half of my symbolics class. I was there in November to teach the first half. It, it requires somewhere around 50 hours of lecture and uh, very difficult to do, uh, in two weeks I just get exhausted. So we did part one in November, part two last week.
2: Excellent. Well, Dr. Renahan, uh, it's a joy to have you on the podcast today. And, and hopefully you have some voice left over after that, all those hours of lecturing. Um, as, as you know, we're going to be talking about uh, the, the release of your new book, uh, which is titled to the Judicious and Impartial Reader, Exposition, Exposition of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, Dr. Renahan, you're clearly one who's done a lot of study on the confession. What was it that ultimately led you to author this book? And who would you say is your intended audience?
1: Okay, two questions there, and help me to remember them. Um, the first one, what led me to this? Way back in the 1980s, um, it, it it seemed to me that many of us had a confession of faith, but we knew very little about that confession. Uh, we, we hardly knew the names of any Uh, of the men who were involved uh, in adopting it back in the 17th century. Uh, We didn't know the names of the churches that were involved, and that got me very interested in beginning to study who they were. You know, um, a couple of Benjamin Keach's books were available from Kriegel, his exposition of the parables and the types and metaphors, and one or two of William Kiffin's books were available from some relatively obscure publishers, but that was it. And when i went to do my phd work i specifically wanted to focus focus attention on the 1689 confession and learn about its uh, the background about the men about the churches about the literature that came out so um my uh, phd dissertation was focused on the ecclesiology of the confession of faith when I began to teach at IRBS in Escondido, California, in 1998, one of the assignments that was given to me was to teach a course for our students uh, that we called Baptist Symbolics, which was primarily, though not exclusively, a, uh, a trip through the Confession of Faith. And so I've, I've been really working on this for more than 30 years. Wow. And, and as I've been teaching, uh, we, we almost always had visiting pastors come in to sit through the classes. And many of them urged me to publish, to take the material that I had worked through and, and developed and was lecturing on, and put it into book form. So I, I began a process of what I call prosifying my lecture notes, putting them into a prose form that could be published in a book. So it's a it's a long process, but it's it's a more than thirty year process that uh, now that I'm uh, now that I'm. I'm advanced in my age, let's put it that way. I realized that that the time has come to get things these things out. So uh, Founders Press approached me about the possibility of doing a series of books. This was several years ago. And uh, I told them that I would like to do First London at, at the beginning because there's a close relationship between the two and they needed to be understood in relation to each other.
2: Sure. And
1: so they were very happy to... Uh, offer me a contract to do the two volumes. First one, uh, which we talked about a year ago for the Vindication of the Truth. And then the second one, which is just right now coming out. And then there God willing, there'll be a third volume uh, on the Baptist Catechism. Uh, primarily, the there are 18 questions in the Baptist Catechism that are different to Westminster Shorter Catechism. And really all that I wanna do is deal with those 18 questions because I think that the resources with uh, John Flavel and Thomas Vincent and Thomas Watson are so good. There's no need for, for any of us to redo those questions that we share in common. Mm-hmm. It's only the ones that are, that are different that are important. So that that's the background. That's what led to this. Uh, it's been a long, long, long process. I'm thankful that uh, it's virtually uh, over. Uh, what was your, What was the other half of your question? I told you I wouldn't remember both.
2: It's all good. Uh, We can definitely let that slide with all the traveling you've been doing of late. Um, The second part of the question was, who is your intended audience
1: Who is the audience? Yeah, Um, well, I I would say that my intended audience uh, has been ever since I, I did my work 30 years ago, has been pastors of churches that have adopted the confession of faith and lay people in those churches who are interested in Christian theology. Um really, it's anyone who belongs to a church that subscribes to the Confession of Faith or that is interested leading their churches into adopting the Confession of Faith. Give them a, a realistic picture of what it's all about.
2: Good.
0: This may be a little bit uh, off track slightly, but hopefully it's somewhat related. You also have uh, another work, I believe, and I'm asking you the name of it now. Uh, where you compare uh, the Second London and the Baptist Catechism to their source documents. What is the name of that, and uh, where can people get a hold of that, and why do you think that could actually be a helpful resource uh, in relation to the books that you've released with founders recently?
1: Okay, well, that's a fair question, Austin. Um, It was called True Confessions, Baptist Documents in the Reformed Family, published by Reformed Baptist Academic Press roughly 20 years ago. And now out of print, uh, the reason that it's out of print is that we, we put it in a format where you can lay it out flat on, on a table and see the columns. And uh, there are some challenges in reprinting a book in that, in that that type of a format. Although there is a publisher who's interested. In fact, I handed him a hard copy of it while, uh, recently and uh, perhaps they'll be able to come through. But why is it helpful? I think it's helpful because we, we need to recognize that there's so much that we have in common with uh, pedo-baptists that this helps us to see the commonalities and, and and the differences. And the differences aren't necessarily all theological or practical. That is that is the distinction between believers baptism and, and um, infant baptism. But there are differences that, that sort of refine and, and give us a sense of what our confession is about. Uh, this is not meant in any way to be a, 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 a sta- an arrogant kind of statement. But our confession of faith is the last of the great confessions that come out of the English Reformation. And in that sense, it uh, the, the editors were able to look at the past and perhaps recognize that there were refinements that would be beneficial to express in the confession of faith. So when you see side by side the various documents, you're able to, see the differences, recognize the commonalities, and even see the, the, the fine-tuning that's made by our um, our fathers. Now, if somebody wanted a copy of it, there is a, a PDF available, and it's found on the IRBS website, irbsseminary.org. There's two S's in the middle, and uh, you can go to the resources page, and you'll be able to purchase a PDF of, uh, of True Confessions.
0: hmm yeah, that's that's helpful. Uh, I myself do not have a physical copy of it. I'm often borrowing my brother Rexford Simrod's copy, and he will not let me buy it from him. So uh, we are. I'm I'm constantly having my hands on that, and my mind was brought there at least uh, as you talked about the Baptist Catechism and many of the questions that overlap uh, in its source document. Mm-hmm. And so um, maybe this is. A good way for us to segue into our next question. We were were talking there about understanding uh, some of our Baptist documents in relation to their source documents. But um, what is the significance of understanding Second London in relation to First London?
1: That's a really important question, and uh, thanks for asking it. You know, there, there are some men, brothers in Christ, who want to assert that there's a difference of theology between the first confession and the second confession. And uh, I think that that's a, that's a real mistake. Uh, it's, a, it's a myth, a popular view. Uh, it's one of those things that the more it gets said, the more true it becomes, even though it's false altogether. You know what I mean? True popularly in people's understanding, but uh, it, it simply doesn't hold up against any evidence. It's a, it's a 21st century observation saying, well, they phrased things differently, or they added this, or they left that out therefore there must be a difference uh, between them. But when when you recognize the fact that uh, the same men were involved in both confessions, uh, the same churches were involved in both uh, the publication of both confessions, when you remember that people um, were 30 years, roughly is the the passage of time between the two. Um, uh, There there are many people who are alive in the 1640s who are still alive and in the churches in the 1640s, 70s and 1680s who their churches subscribed to those confessions of faith all of the evidence demonstrates the the commonality rather than the distinction between the two confessions so i i think that it's really important for us to say that and this is this is why i wanted to begin my series with first london to show um, its correspondence with the reformed confessions of the day remembering that it was first issued prior to the Westminster Confession of Faith, it didn't have the Westminster Confession as a basis upon which to build. It builds upon the 1596 True Confession, which was written by English separatist Puritans in the Netherlands. Um, I wanted to begin with that in order to lay a basis by which those who will read the, the book on the Second London Confession can see the commonalities between them.
2: Uh, it's very helpful. And, and Dr. Renahan, would you say the primary reason for um, the, the 1689 being longer or more substantial in doctrine is because the Westminster was produced uh, after the first London, or could you get into some of those details just a list of go listening?
1: Yeah, that, that's interesting too. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that, that I can give you a definitive answer on that. Of course they did rely upon the Westminster Confession. It's sort of the grandparent document. The in-between is the immediate parent would be the Savoy Declaration that was published in 1658 by a group of Congregationalists. But I, I, I go back to what I said earlier, and that is that as the really the last great confession of the Reformation era in, in, in England, OK, in England, um, the, the churches that adopted it and that first published it had the opportunity of recognizing um, difficulties that needed to be addressed. And the, even the the specific reasons why the Confession of Faith was first published need to be recognized. My son Sam, in his book, From Shadows to Substance, has laid this out. The problem was a man named Thomas Collier, very prominent man, published a book called A Confession of Faith, um, he was, the churches, the other particular Baptist churches, easily were identified with him, and his views were really heretical. Um, I mean, way off the deep end on justification, on the doctrine of God, on the person of Christ, um, on the last things, a denial of eternal punishment, uh, many, many errors. And so it was important for the Second London Confession to be able to address those things. In fact, what's, what's really interesting is to notice how many of the, the fine-tuning moments in Second London directly address the problems that Thomas Collier had written earlier? That was their method in the First London. They, they addressed within the body of the Confession the objections that were made by others. It's likewise the, the methodology in the Second. So, it, you know, it, it's, its extended length really articulates the orthodoxy of the churches as over against heterodoxy, and it it, uh, it reflects the maturity of theology in 1677, which is when it was first published. Um, you know, in 1644, the men who put it together, in the course of about six weeks, I think they did a really great job. It's really a fine confession of faith. But at the same time, none of them had been trained in theology, professionally trained. They, they had been members of churches and were listening to puritan preaching all their lives and that's where you see the the uh, the benefit uh the, the the fine nature of the first confession where the second confession comes from some men who had uh, uh more formal training who were, were better acquainted with the range of christian theology and and they express those things a great question i hope that answer is
2: clear well, that's very helpful. I appreciate it, Dr. Renahan. And um, just to kind of segue into our next question on other podcasts, we've heard you speak about the importance of reading the Second London horizontally. Um, I thought that was very interesting uh, in light of some of the comments you've made in those contexts. And maybe for my own clarification, even for uh, the clarification of our listeners. Would you be willing to expound what you mean by reading the second one horizontally? And perhaps give us some examples of why you believe this to be such an important reading practice.
1: Um, you know, that the, the term horizontally is a more refined term. I used to say read it sideways. Sideways <laughs> is, is picturesque, horizontal, maybe it's a little bit more refined. I sure. mean the same thing by both of them. And what I what I mean by this is that. The Confession has 32 chapters, but they're not 32 discrete topics that are unrelated to each other. When when you read chapters at the beginning of the Confession, you're laying down a foundation for chapters that will come later. And so you, it's good to ask the question, does this anticipate something that will come later on? And when you're after the first six seven chapters of the Confession, it's very important to ask the question of yourself, what does this build upon that has come before? So you're, pardon me, you're always working backwards and forwards, sideways or horizontally, to think through topics. Um, For example, the Holy Spirit. There is no chapter on the Holy Spirit in the Confession of Faith. And you know, in the early 20th century, Charles Briggs, a liberally liberal-oriented Presbyterian at Union Seminary in New York, was at the forefront of a movement to uh, change the Westminster Confession of Faith. One of the things that he wanted was a chapter on the Holy Spirit. Well, Westminster doesn't have one, Savoy doesn't have one, our confession doesn't have one. But does, does that mean that there's no doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Not at all. Um, if you read the confession horizontally, paying attention to how the Holy Spirit is woven into the theology of the confession, you can actually develop a, a really uh, thorough, well, well-considered doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You you have his deity in chapter two, you have his works um, in Christ the mediator and what he does in terms of the work of the savior. And then when you get to the, the chapters on um, the application of the covenant, the Holy Spirit, is essential to the application of all of those blessings purchased by our mediator so that you and I might enjoy salvation that that's one example i mean there there are many 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 of them and i lay them out in uh, in the book uh chapter by chapter i say this picks up a thread from back here or this anticipates a thread that will be over there and and i think it it makes the confession not just two dimensional it makes it three dimensional because we can see the 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 and and it's three dimensional in bright and shining colors, because it helps us to see all kinds of wonderful and beautiful doctrines that are that are contained in the Confession of Faith.
2: Sure, no, that's that's very helpful. Uh, you know, we talk about interpreting Scripture with Scripture to, to bring clarity on certain doctrines. Maybe we could say interpreting the, the Second London Confession with the Second London Confession.
1: Um, we we could say that, uh, and I think that that's useful. But but really, what I'm arguing for is a recognition of the analogy of faith
2: okay. the analogy
1: of faith is that which is summarized in the entirety of the confession so it reading it in this way now that's not to deny that if if you wanted to teach uh, a class on christ the mediator you can go to, to chapter eight and look at it very closely and you could actually reorder the paragraphs to talk about his person and his work right so you could do that that would be very useful but then i would suggest to you that the next step would be to notice. How Chapter Eight relates to the rest of the Confession, so that, for example, when you talk about Him in His Person, you want to think about the doctrine of God first. You know, theology proper must precede Christology; otherwise, you you end up with problems uh, with the the divine nature of Christ. So it you could look at more narrowly Chapter Eight, but then you want to recognize its relationship to Chapter One, that Christ is the theme of Scripture. Chapter Two of God and of the Holy Trinity. And what we're taught about his divine nature, uh, his work in creation, et cetera, et cetera, it, it, it becomes a means of recognizing all of the connections and strands in the confession.
2: Thank you very much. It's helpful.
0: Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Baptist Catechism is one of the uh, confessional documents of IRBS. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we've we've adopted the First London, the Second London, and the Baptist Catechism as our standards.
0: Yeah, it seems at least in my reading of the Baptist Catechism that it's really easy to see the horizontal uh, nature of of the document because there's a clear progression where everything's flowing together. So, oh yeah, um,
1: yeah. You know what the the question is asked at the beginning: what does what do the Scriptures principally teach? And the answer is the Scriptures principally teach that which we're to believe about the duty, what we're to believe about God and the duty that He's given to us. And that's the outline of the rest of the, the shorter Catechism, and thus the Baptist Catechism. It, it, it's wonderful.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, maybe a year from now or whenever uh, your third volume comes back on, we'll talk more exclusively about the Baptist Catechism. I know that that would be a joy to us and our listeners. But uh, continuing our conversation on Second London in particular, um, no pun intended, what is the significance now of understanding this document in its historical context? Why should we read some of the particular Baptist authors from the 17th century to help us uh, understand how they understood this confession of faith? The the
1: subtitle of my book, um, I probably will get it wrong because I don't have a hard copy in front of me. I don't even have a the computer document open up, is... Uh, A contextual historical exposition of the Second London Confession Um, I you know my own experience way back in the 1990s was making assumptions about the doctrine of the confession that have proven to be inaccurate I won't I won't say false but inaccurate that is I was reading the confession of faith with 20th and 21st century eyes thinking that uh, if I read the, the latest systematic theology, or even a, a good 20th century systematic theology, that that necessarily was exactly what was intended by the confession of faith. But the more that I worked with it, the more that I realized that I was, along with many other of my friends and, and you know, good men, we were making assumptions about the document that simply didn't hold up. And so this, this is what my goal is in writing the book, and, and of course, the goal cannot be achieved, but I, but I can conceptualize it of it as well. Um, I would like to imagine that if, uh, well, let me, let me start this way. The confession first appears in literature in August of 1677. It's in a, a minute in the Petit France uh, manuscript church book that says that the confession was read by the brethren and, and it ought to be published. So that's the, the first time that it appears in any literature of which we're aware. Uh, and the date makes sense because the imprint on the title page is 1677, so it, it fits together. But I like to imagine that the, the members of the churches in London who first published the confession um, would have sat down with a copy of it in their hands on a autumn night in later in the year in 1677, and they would have been reading through it. And my question is, how would they have understood the document in their own context, how would they understand the language of it and interpret it? Not in light of 300 years of church history that has gone on, and perhaps refinements in the way that we express systematic theology. But what did they mean? That there's language that they use, that uh, the way that they use it is not the same as the way that we use it today. Let me give you an example in chapter one paragraph five uh which speaks about uh the the various things that god has given to us to demonstrate that scripture is true one of the statements that is made there is the scope of the whole um and the the phrase that is used the way that we use the word scope is we think of uh from beginning to end uh homeschoolers when they look at curriculum, they think of the scope and the sequence, okay? What does it cover from the start until the end and what's the sequence in which it covers? But that's not how the word scope is used in chapter one. Uh, There's a long history of the use of the term, the Latin is scopus, you can hear the the linguistic uh, relationship. Scopus is not the breadth of something, actually it's the pointer, that which it points to. Mm. So the scope of the whole, is not everything that's taught from Genesis to Revelation. Actually, the scope of the whole is the whole points to one thing, and the one thing that it points to is the glory of God in Jesus Christ, as that's revealed in all of scripture. See, in in the the medieval mind and in the post-Reformation mind, and in fact, if you you were to uh, take down some of your Puritan commentaries after we're done recording, open them up to the first chapter, and frequently, One of the first things you'll notice in the initial paragraph is the scope of paul's letter is and what what the author means is that which it points to the purpose of that letter that's what one five is meaning when it speaks of the scope of the whole not the breadth but that to which it points think about it like this um you know i I love bird watching and i've been in places where you have a spotting scope and the purpose of the spotting scope is not to be able to look at a wall of trees across a field from you, it's to be able to look at a branch and the bird that's sitting on the branch next to a leaf. That's all you see when you, you dial in the scope. That's exactly what is meant by um, by scope in 1.5. Um, there are illustrations that are used, it's like the, the compass needle that always points north, That that is pointing to one thing. Or the arrow, that is aimed at the bullseye. The scope is the bullseye, that to which it's pointing. So you know, that's a it's an easy mistake to make, because we think of scope in terms of the breadth of things, where they think of scope in terms of the narrowness of something, and that that it it makes that statement all the more wonderful, doesn't it? What it it is asserting to us that the scope of the whole, which is to bring all glory to God, is Jesus Christ in His glory.
2: That that's just one example. And we've been talking with Dr. James Renahan about his new book to the judicious and impartial reader. Dr. Renahan, as we draw our conversation to a close today, do you have any final thoughts about your new book or anything else we've been discussing during our time together?
1: Oh, well, that's um, do I have any more thoughts about it? I hope that it's useful. I really do. Uh, there's it's not meant at all to be controversial. Uh, that's never been my desire. Um, almost only a couple of times in the book, the whole book, 660,70 pages, do I interact with people and disagree with them. Mm-hmm. And that's because I think that those issues are important. But on the whole, I decided I wasn't it wasn't a polemic. It was intended to be a help and an assistance. And I, I hope that people will read it and they'll be able to walk away from it and say, well, now I understand what was intended by the authors in 1677 by the general assembly in 1689 what was intended by them as they express themselves in the confession of faith and if if that is accomplished i'll be very happy um now what if i, if I you don't mind me keep going for a moment or two what what that means though is i i also hope that if somebody disagrees with a statement in the confession that they'll be able to say i understand what was intended by the authors and i don't agree with that so at that point i have to disagree with the the text of the confession i think it's it's disingenuous to say well i just interpret it differently really right. that's a post postmodern interpret way of approaching the text let's let's see what it what it means or what it meant in its original context and there may be places where we can disagree with that i don't deny that i just wish that people would say okay that's what it meant. Now I understand. I can't agree with that. And so I take a different view. And so I differ from the confession on this point. I I hope that it will be helpful in those kind of circumstances as well.
2: Sure. I I think that's a great goal. And it'd be my prayer that that would ultimately come to pass with the the release of this book and, and the study of this book in the years to come. Dr. Renahan, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. It's always a privilege to interact with you i know this is my first time interacting with you and in this particular forum but i know austin and jimmy and our listeners greatly appreciate your scholarship and uh, we want to wish you the very best in your service to christ church and to christian academia as god gives you opportunities. so thank you again so much for being here today
1: well thank you very much that's very kind of you and it's been great to be with you too
2: amen to our listeners we want to thank you for your continued support of the covenant podcast until next time We wish you grace and peace. God bless.